As we look to continuously improve global healthcare, how can we take advantage of cutting edge technologies without creating new unnecessary risks? In this episode of The Evidence Space, we're going to be talking about clinical safety. What does it mean? And how does it apply to the developers of new healthcare technologies? Hello, and welcome to The Evidence Space, a podcast from the Institution of Engineering and Technology, which presents conversations with leaders from health, care, and life sciences. I'm your host, Dr. Peter Bannister, and in this episode of The Evidence Space, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Matt Fennec from Ada Health and Stuart Harrison from Ethos. Matt, Stuart, both of you, welcome to The Evidence Space. Thank you very much for having me on. Matt, could we start with you? Would you provide an intro and give us a fun fact about yourself, please? Sure. So, so I'm Matt Fennec. So uh, I'm medical safety lead at Ada Health. And uh, I originally trained as a doctor uh, back home in Malta and uh, then did my postgraduate training in the UK. Um, I did 10 years of training and specializing in diabetes and obesity before moving into uh, health technology regulation and policy. Uh, and I bring those aspects to my role as medical safety lead at Ada Health. And uh, I had to scratch my head for a fun fact, but one thing that if, if, if you met me in person, not on a Zoom call, you'd know I'm not very tall, but when I was 11, I represented my country in a, a national basketball team, which is something I uh, never thought I'd be saying really, but there, there you go. <laughs> That's great. And Stuart, lovely to have you on the show as well. Oh, it's nice to be invited. Thank you. I don't get out much, especially not now. So, um, yeah, I'm Stuart Harrison. Um, I used to be head of um, clinical safety in NHS Digital for about 15 years. Um, and um, in May last year, I uh, kind of went public with my company. I've had it open for a few years doing a bit weird. I do safety stuff as a hobby, um, as well as uh, my vocation now. So I'm pretty much working in the, in the private sector now. Um, through my company and a, and, a, and a quite a few colleagues. So this this past 12 months has been quite good. Right, there's a lot going on in this space. How about a fun fact? Oh, my fun fact. Um, I, 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 I'm boring, I'm really boring. I, I, like my, I like my comics, you can see the Iron Man here. Um, I have the fun fact, I have um, Avengers, Captain America, both signed by uh, the artist um, from the date of my birth as well. So I don't know whether that's showing off or a fun fact. I don't know, but there are other darker things uh, in my in my cupboard of uh, a northern man in my youth, but uh, none of which could be uh, on this this kind of podcast. Okay, I think we'll save that for a different episode. Maybe brilliant again. Thank you both very much. So we're going to talk today about clinical safety. Throughout this series, we started to understand that one of the key aims of clinical testing of a medical device or a new therapy is to ensure not only is it effective, but also of course that it's safe and it doesn't have any harmful unintended consequences. I'd imagine that clinical safety is not just down to making sure that you've got all of the warnings written in the user manual. So who's responsible to make sure that a medical device is safe? Who's gonna go first? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy to start. I mean, there's a, there's a short answer to this, which is to say that everybody who's involved in its development um, but if we wanted a bit of a longer answer, I think you might say that um, 
both manufacturers and regulators. When I was thinking about um, sort of this question and thinking about this podcast, I realized, of course, that there's a higher level question um, when we're talking particularly about novel technologies like, for example, artificial intelligence in healthcare, where the space is nascent, where the, the field is being developed, the evidence for clinical benefit, benefit is still being developed. And that is to ask the question, what is an acceptable safe level of performance? Who gets to decide what is safe? And that is really where the, the importance of really getting a wide stakeholder group, users, developers, um, manufacturers and technologists, regulators coming together, deciding in a sort of consensus building way what is an acceptable standard, and then having the regulators and manufacturers have the regulations in order to be held to those standards. Of course, I say, you know, I see the role, the importance, the, it's essential that regulators are independent, are seen to be independent. Their role is also to be a trusted body uh, so users can trust the space, again, particularly if it's a new space. But ultimately, regulators and manufacturers are going to have to work together to set the standards and to have the regulations to be held to those standards. And Stuart, from your perspective, once a new device or technology is in use, who do you look to to take responsibility for its safety? Well, I think this is where I have a different view um, around the regulatory industry at the moment. Um, it is getting better, but it, for me, it's just not fit for purpose. So, so the manufacturer, first and foremost, because you're selling the product, um, and, and that is law, um, and an element of that law uh, decides around the safety and security or vulnerability of the product. The users themselves, whether they be clinicians or, or whether they be citizens, public or patients, whatever you want to call them, they've probably got the biggest um, part to play in this because the current regulations are very old-fashioned, um, they're very uh, traditional, and a manufacturer um, is bound to do just enough to um, evidence that the product is safe and fit for, for purpose. But um, a, a user community, user feedback, um, trials, um, feedback over the first couple of years, because within any product, you've got that bathtub curve where you've got that um, initial first year, you have quite a high level of failures or, or issues with your product. Um, and if you have a more collegiate user base where you can actively receive um, any kind of problem, whether it be something from Twitter or Facebook, or whether it be a formal complaint through your service desk, all of these things, can work towards improving your product. Um, and, and a lot of these manufacturers, uh, some of the big ones will have um, physicians, medically trained people on board, but not all of them do. And the massive, the volume now over the last two years is um, mobile health and medical devices that are classified as software as a medical device. Um, the volume is exponentially growing. And not all of these companies have got the access to clinicians or physicians. And, and, and then if, if you go even further, not all of them have access to clinicians who are experienced in the field in which the product is being sold. So it's, it's an absolute nightmare. Um, and yes, the regulators can act like the police, but in a, in a safety related industry, it must be, um, it must be dealt with differently, it must be far more op open. 
I, I mean, I completely agree. And, and with digital space, you know, we've got everything that you've been saying that I agree. And you've got a, a fast level of progress and an accelerating level of progress. And the technology is, you know, getting, you know, we saw over the coronavirus crisis how there was this push to release new products. Um, so, so yeah, completely agree. And, and in my role as medical safety leader, in fact, I uh, set up and run the post-market surveillance system for our products at Ada Health. And that, as you said rightly, is about surveying everything from social media comments to formal complaints. Uh, myself, as a trained doctor, um, reviews these. But when you know there are difficult issues, we have a clinical governance structure where we speak to other trained doctors um, in order to review these cases. And it's all about really having a really good and open and transparent relationship with the users to encourage people to um, uh, report these issues, as you say, particularly in the early stages of a product. Um, but also that they trust that something is going to be done with the report. Um, and, and that is crucial, especially when you think about clinical trials are necessarily smallish. And then when things are released onto the you know big wide world, you start to get the real consequences of the uh, device acting in the world, basically. When you mentioned post-market clinical follow-up, I think you're referring to the idea that a medical device can only be tested so much before you have to release it. So what you're then required to do is to continue to monitor it and make sure that it continues to be showing itself as safe. So there is a, a distinction between post-market clinical follow-up, um, which is more of the, the post-market clinical evaluation that continues, as you just said, and the bit that I'm responsible for in Ada, although of course I work very closely with our clinical evaluation team, but the bit that I'm directly responsible for is post-market surveillance, of which you've got active processes where we um, go out and review what's happening in the market and happening in the field, seeing what other reports have been made regulators, seeing if they apply, for example, to our product devices, and passive, where we have open systems in order to receive this feedback on social media, predominantly on social media and by email these days, as well as formal complaints through our sort of, as, as Stuart said, service desk and other sort of help desk type structures. And Stuart, you mentioned that the regulations are not fit for purpose and talked about some of the ways in which new technologies are starting to deviate from the way those regulations were intended. How beyond simply relying on the regulators should the industry be thinking about quality and safety in healthcare? Well, it's, it's a statement that I've um, I made not to be controversial. It's, it's based on experience over the last 15 years um, and it's not biased. There's no vested interest. It, it's... I've worked in other safety critical industries. I've seen different types of safety cultures, different types of regulatory frameworks. I, I know what's good and what's bad about all of them. Um, I see a lot of people saying that the health industry should be more like the aerospace industry or, or one, one or two traditional. Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I don't think that um, that's the right way. I think the health industry should decide for itself um, what the regulatory framework should be like. Um, and it's been a, I don't know whether it, it's achievable, but an aspiration of mine would be to help influence the safety industry in the, um, in the healthcare market such that traditional safety critical industries look to health for the next developments and the next stages as to what it looks like. Um, that for me, I think I'd retire happy if that, if that happened. Um, I think the current regulatory framework for uh, a manufacturer is, is, is okay. It deals with 70%, 70-80% of the problem. Um, and then there's a whole raft of other types of products that are making decisions on behalf of a clinician. 
it's all right having a post-market surveillance and vigilance system and it's a it's a one it's it's a one-way street from the the users of these systems back to the manufacturer and the manufacturer can secretly prove that they align to the standards and the regulations and they can demonstrate this but nobody else knows that you can take every any medical device manufacturer in in the world and ask them for publicly available statistics and knowledge on the the systems and the the patient safety reporting um there's only a handful that will probably come back to you with that kind of openness and that kind of evidence now if you ask me the same question around whose responsibility is it the same line of inquiry for unregulated health it in the nhs i can give you some bloody good stories on what what good looks like and and that's what should it that's that for me is what should be influencing the regulatory market so if i have a problem with a device and i report it um it we use yellow card reporting system with the mhra there are similar reporting systems around the world that goes straight to the mhra if it's something that's serious the manufacturer will get involved and i may have a direct communication by the manufacturer but whatever's wrong with that product will be you won't get the full root cause analysis publicly declared um you'll not be able to access that information over time um so how many incidents have we had with this kind of app and this kind of manufacturer over a full business year you you'll never know that so how can we learn from those safety events i would imagine that um 2 years ago if somebody was to say the biggest problem in our industry is going to be health and well-being apps and symptom checkers using <clears throat> either static or or real-time algorithms to make decisions then the regulatory industry together with um experts um, and academia could come up with better guidance and better policy um to improve the situation but now we we we're still playing catch up we we've now we there is absolutely um i do apologize i did i did did say bloody and that's now of twice but there's bugger all um standards or reg- regulation around artificial intelligence currently we're, we're all talking about what what should be done and and we're kind of two years into this now the 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 horses bolted wouldn't it be nice to have entered um into this area of new technology with at least a light touch set of regulations and principles and guidance but only now are we seeing um things uh, articles from um UK specific NHSX Turing Institute BSI are just kicking up a standards um piece of standards work based on a joint collaboration with AME um the American version of, of BSI and that led from the FDA paper um that was there's a about 18 months ago um So these things are always playing catch up. I agree with with a lot of of what Stuart said. I think, you know, starting with the aviation industry, I I've sort of um uh, been involved in these discussions about whether healthcare should be more or less like the the aviation industry. I think there's two aspects which I like and which um we can think about which is this culture of openness, this no blame culture to investigating incidents which has helped a lot with airline safety, there's no doubt about that. So that is something which I think 
we can learn from, certainly from my time in the NHS. Sometimes there was an aspiration towards no blame culture, but but not always sort of really, really follow through. So I think that's something we can learn from. And also, you know, of course, in terms of algorithmic functioning, um, uh, jets have been uh, flying by wire, you know, in the background, and we wouldn't expect it another way for, for years now. And there's something about sort of seamless algorithmic um, sort of work in the background that is coming to healthcare, but obviously in a very safe way, which we need to think a lot about what this means for human computer interaction, what this means for training of new doctors, new healthcare professionals, which are all open spaces. Which I think we can learn from the airline industry, but as Stuart said, not just apply it wholesale, but seeing how does that aspect apply to, to healthcare. I think the other point as well you said about the standards of artificial intelligence, you know, symptom checkers and these, these these tools. I think, I mean, in my previous role before joining ADA, I did work with a think tank where we developed or we helped develop uh, standards with NHSX. And I think you, you're, you're absolutely right, Stuart. I think there was a lot of excitement with the rediscovery of deep learning, what, 10 years ago now, was it? And now suddenly we're going to have AI in healthcare and we can really do it now. We can analyze images fantastically. And suddenly people started thinking, okay, well, let's think about principles and principles will be sufficient, but it's not sufficient. And I think we're now at the stage, I agree, maybe too prolonged a stage of moving from principles to the operation operationalization of those principles. And okay, we've maybe agreed what we ought to do, but what does that actually mean? And what do we do? And we've had the standards from NHSX. We've had stuff like the evidence standards framework from NICE as well, which I think is a very useful document. It's of course for all digital health tools, not necessarily only for novel technologies. There, there's two other initiatives which ADA um, are involved in. Uh, the first, uh, my colleagues are involved in an initiative that um, is convened by the World Health Organization and the International Telecommunications. International Telecommunications Union, the ITU, both United Nations bodies, and that is the AI for Health focus groups, which is about setting standards for performance and benchmarking of performance, and ADA's leading the symptom checker topic group for that. So that is a collaboration across industry, across regulators, across academia to come together and set the standards of what is the benchmark for performance, which we don't know because this is a new field. What is an acceptable performance for these te technologies? Do they have to be better than doctors? And we absolutely assume that they're going to be 100% accurate. Well, no doctor is 100% accurate. I'd be the first to say that with a previously practicing clinician myself. And, and that is one initiative which is, um, I think, very important, which we're involved in. I, I will pick up on the point that Stuart said about not having manufacturers too deeply involved in that. And I and I get that, I completely get that. I think what's happened in the AI space is the lines between academia and manufacturers have blurred. And you now have pretty well-established research units in, in the private sector. You look at the success of DeepMind, you look at the success of OpenAI recently with GPT-3 and the uh, natural language processing tool, which you know made made great waves. We have some very academically minded um, engineers and developers in at Ada, which I'm, I'm you know feel very lucky to work with. And you, you know, again, I I see some people say, well, this blurring shouldn't happen, but that's that's the world we live in at the moment, where there is this crossover between academia and, and industry in this new space. So there's always going to be a new technology. And then the question, I guess, is how we can understand what clinical safety means for the emerging technology that everyone is pinning their hopes on for the future of healthcare and life sciences. Matt, Stuart, there's a lot that we've learned already. And I'd like to follow up on the next episode of The Evidence Space.
But in the meantime, thank you both for your contributions. On this episode of The Evidence Space, we focused on the topic of clinical safety. We've learned whose responsibility it is to ensure the clinical safety of new medical technologies. We've also heard some of the challenges faced by the regulations in terms of keeping up with the potential offered by new technologies and development practices. And we've also discussed how to balance the potential of cutting edge technology with the need for maintaining overall patient safety. We'll be continuing on this topic in the next episode of The Evidence Space, where we'll learn how techniques such as safety by design can be combined with other approaches to ensuring the safe and effective delivery of new treatments and therapies to patients. I hope that you found the information in this episode useful. As always, if you have questions or suggestions for a future episode of The Evidence Space, please do get in touch. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.